love for you to take the Word of God and turn to John chapter 15 and verse number 1 is where we'll begin. And if you don't mind, we will stand for the reading of God's Word if you're willing and able out of reverence for it. And we'll pick up our reading this morning in John chapter 15 and verse number 1. You read these words. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, no one, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends." For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command, that you love one another. Let's pray. And again, Father, we come to you. Um, I know the prayers have already been offered, and I, and I hope that many prayers have been offered, Father. In your name this morning. And that they've been offered, Father, in pursuit of you, in pursuit of your Son, in pursuit of your Spirit, Father, and that this day may be a day that has an eternal value. Father, that on this day we might lay up some treasures in heaven, Father, because we, we sought after Christ. So may you, Lord, help us do that now. Father, so thankful for the privilege it is just to stand before, a, before your bride. Father, and proclaim the glorious realities of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Um, it seems practically impossible to do that justice. Um, and I know that without you, Father, it will be. Um, so I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would just take um, the word that has already been spoken, Father, and the word that will be declared within the next hour and do phenomenal, eternal things with it. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, undergird um, the propagation of your word, Father, into the hearts, the souls, the minds of men, women, and children that are ever before us. And Father, may the word go this morning forth, as our brother prayed earlier, with clarity. Um, Father, would you give us just a few moments as the people of God, even my own heart, um, just um, stable minds, reverent spirits, but also, Father, joyful 
inner men and women, that we may receive the Word of God with fullness and with the utmost joy. So Lord, we thank You for the time that we have together to break the bread of life and pray that we will do so faithfully, trusting that if that's the case, Lord, um, You'll do a work in our hearts, You'll transform our minds, and You'll accomplish things, Father, uh, that will not only last the rest of our lives, but will no doubt have an eternal um, reward. Uh, not for our sakes, Lord, but for the sake of Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I know last week I said that we would be back in the book of Mark, as you know. Uh, if you've been with us for any time, that we've been taking our time through the book of Mark verse by verse. Lord willing, we have something as approximately a month left to finish up the book. And had every intention of returning there last week when I said that. Um, but towards the end of the sermon, almost immediately after, um, I felt compelled to carry on, um, in some sense, um, that last point that I tried to make. I don't know that I made it very well, just to be honest with you. At least in my own heart. Not to say that the Lord um, couldn't work through it and didn't work through it and didn't impress upon each of our hearts um, eternal things, but at the same time, uh, I felt compelled to come back to that concept, to that principle um, at the end of the sermon and, and, and seek um, to the best of my ability, leaning on Christ as, as much as I possibly can um, to, do, to explain to our hearts that reality of the vital nature of the union that we have with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, you'll remember if you were with us, and if not, I'll, uh, let, me, let me put this out there, that we were in Isaiah chapter number 54, and particularly in verse number 5 as we built to that, verse number 5 refers to our Lord as our Maker, um, and our Maker as our Husband. We identify that Husband as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, that under the new covenant, our Lord and Savior enters into a relationship with His people that is illustrated in the union of marriage. And just like the union of marriage that we have today, um, it is both, it, it may not only be this, but it is at least this, it is both legal and vital. And I use those words to, to illustrate this, that it's legal in the sense of, of the court, the nation, the civil government. That when they look at a marriage relationship and they see a man and a woman, they look at it as one entity. Um, for example, if a, a wife or a husband accrue debt and then that person dies, the other person is legally responsible for it. They are identified with them. They are representative of them. But at the same time, if a husband uh, builds a grand estate um, and the husband dies, that wife is identified with the husband such that it is hers. I mean, it is not his and he allows her to use it. It is hers. There is this one flesh, this union that, that um, the, the nation civilly understands and even identifies those people as one. And they are often representing another. And in this life, that's a difficult thing sometimes, especially if you enter into a union with someone um, that, 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 that brings about negative consequences. The glorious reality of this union, though, is that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ always represents us. Um, in, in, in time and in eternity, uh, we will one day stand before the Father and we will stand sure and steadfast and perfect in righteousness. Why? Because we have a husband who is the Lord. 
And He always does well. Our inheritance is His inheritance. As long as He stands, we stand. Legally before the Father, forgiven of all of our debt and accruing a, and accounted a righteousness of our own. But we have, to, we have to guard ourselves because it's more than just legal. Um, it's, it's also vital. And I use that word to say that it's living, it's real. That marriage is more than just um, a marriage certificate. It's more than just words on a page. It's more than just a legal union. It's more than just a, a civil way to, to, to bind together your taxes. You know, it's more than just property inheritance. It's more than just accruing debt. It's more than just, than just ink on a page. And thus is the Christian life. That yes, we have a legal standing before God, and that is amazing, and we should glory in that. Um, yet at the same time, there is a living union that our Lord um, has truly and really with us in this life temporally. And we don't need to wait until heaven for that document to take effect. That we are His, and He is ours. Paul is, is, is explicit on multiple accounts. We are in Christ, and He is in us, and He is living in us. We are members of Christ. Um, we are members in our inner man, and we are also members in our outer man. You know, the, the, the Bible is clear. Paul particularly also states that not only is, is our is spirit in us, but our bodies to the church at Corinth are members of Christ. Therefore, you are to treat the temple well. You're not to bind yourself, he says, um, to, to prostitutes or harlots, because to do so would to be but to bind Christ to that. That it matters what we do here. That, that, that we are bound with Christ, not only internally, but in some sense also externally. And what we do in this body matters. And that there is a true and a real union in this life with Christ, thus that He uh, empowers us to live the Christian life, to grow in grace and knowledge, and to be like our Lord. It is the, the, the way that, we, that, that, that change is in, influenced in our life. I mean, it is the way that we change. It's more than just legal, just like a marriage union. That as husband and wife live together, they share life together, they fellowship together, and they share themselves with one another. Physically, intimately, socially, um, habits begin to change, thinking becomes, uh, begins to come alike. Um, and again, that can, that's negative in this life oftentimes. I had a conversation just with our uh, children this week as we're on a long road trip about the person that they are to marry. And the, the, the negative consequences that that can have if they choose poorly or if, if they seek out the wrong type of man particularly. Why? Because, because bad company corrupts good morals, Paul says. Um, and we share with one another life and we influence one another. And that's bad, but that can also be good if you, if you marry the right type of man or the right type of woman. And that is glorious if you are married this morning to your husband, which is your maker. Because you don't negatively influence him. He always positively influences you. You don't share your life with him in that sense. He shares his life with you. And the more that you are with him, the more that you are gloriously changed for the glory of Christ. So the goal in the Christian life, or at least one of the goals, is to be not only in union with Christ legally, but to be in communion with Christ daily. 
every single day throughout the rest of your Christian life. And what that will do is that that will foster change in your life. And as you share in fellowship with Him, you will inevitably become like Him. That's the argument that's being made here in John chapter number 15. John chapter number 15 and verse number 1. Let me read these words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Abide in Me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him bears much fruit. For without Me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in Me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. But this is by this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be My disciples." It's very likely here that our Lord is picking up a theme from um, the prophet Isaiah himself. In Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 27, he speaks of the nation of Israel as a vine. And as it is to be productive. And condemnation comes upon it, in particularly Isaiah chapter number 5, because it's not. Um, he speaks of God as the vine dresser and as Israel as the vine or the vineyard. And here our Lord takes that illustration to speak of Himself as being the true vine and the Father being the vine dresser. And it may very well be that our Lord is seeking to have His disciples understand who would have understood um, those passages to refer to Israel as a nation who failed to be fruitful for the glory of God and teach them that He is the true vine. And that, that, that as the true vine, He would be very fruitful for the glory of God and that His fruitfulness would manifest itself in the branches that would produce fruit. That He Himself would be the source of life. And as that life flows through those that are in Him, the branches, that those branches would inevitably produce fruit. That the fruit would be theirs in one sense, but not in another. It would be His. It's fruit that's produced by the vine and carried by the branches and even held up by the branches because of the life that flows through the branches that is not their own. That this is a shared life between the vine and the branches. And that the branches are 100% dependent upon the vine. That it shares life with the branches. The branches don't share life with the vine. That the vine is not dependent upon the branches producing fruit, but the branches are 100% totally dependent upon the vine to produce anything um, and not be withered away. That He's teaching His disciples the necessity of a vital, thriving union. A saving relationship with Him. He's teaching them the necessity of that in their lives. And that's right, it's a necessity. That without Him, they can do nothing. And that the reality is, is that that is the only kind of Christian life that we see in the text. 
And he does that. He shows that necessity by way of a great contrast. Verse number two. He says, every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. So what you find there is you find a branch that bears no fruit, and you find a branch that bears fruit and is pruned. And it's pruned for a reason. Something is being taken away so that more can be added. As it produces... Um, there, there are things that are removed that are destructive or damaging or at least sucking life that should be going to the fruit. Thus, the Father comes and he, and he prunes that branch. Why? So that more may grow. But there's another type of branch, and that branch is the type of branch that bears no fruit. And what it indicates is, is that there is no life within that branch. And there are some people that will come here and they'll say that, that, these, are, you know, that, that these are two types of, of Christian branches. Um, some are fruitful and just some are not. I think it's pretty clear in the text that he's not referring here to two different types of Christian people. Those that are nominal Christians or subnominal and those that are, are, are just super spiritual. You know, in the text, it seems clear that there are two types of disciples. Those that adhere um, to, Christian, to Christ in name only and those who are actually legally and vitally in union and communion with Him. And and within those two groups, the ones that don't produce any fruit, uh, verse number 6, He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And not only that, verse number 8 says that the reality of fruit growing upon the branch um, bears proof to the nature of discipleship and the nature of Christianity. The reality is, is that those that don't bear fruit are not in the vine and they're cast off because they're unfruitful and that those that are in the vine that are the branches that have life flowing through them will bear fruit and it will, it will prove, some translations say, so you will prove to be my disciple. That there are those branches that bear fruit, those branches that don't bear fruit. So the question is, is how does one bear fruit? How does one change? How does one grow in Christ? Verse number four, the command comes, abide in me and I in you. Right? Christ in me and Christ in you in some sense, we we could say. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So you and me and I and you. He describes the Christian life in those phrases, particularly abiding in Him. To abide means literally to remain, to abide. It generally um, speaks of uh, in reference to a place, to stay with, to live with, to share, to abide, literally to remain. Remain in me. And if you remain in me, life will flow and you will produce fruit. Verse number four continued, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Again, we see the necessity of abiding. Here Christ is clear that no branch can produce anything of its own accord. There's no native inherent life in any branch. It draws its life from another source, and that life is the life of the branch. He then relates that relationship to his disciples and tells them, just like that, just like that, you know that a, can't, a branch cannot produce fruit by itself. Know this, you cannot. You, this isn't about vines and this isn't about branches. Man, this is about you. All right? 
Disciples, this is about you. Church, this is about you. I'm not here today. He wasn't there to teach them a lesson on, on agriculture. You know, They understood that already. He takes a living illustration and he applies that to the Christian life and he says, you already know this, therefore know this about yourselves. That if you're out there laboring, you're out there in the midst of a task, you're living life, know this, that I am the source of life. And that if you try to accomplish anything outside of me, it'll accomplish absolutely nothing. Let me just tell you, that's one of the most scary realities. Sober, let's, say, let's say sobering realities of all my life. You know? 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, Paul exhorts that church there who's in the midst of divisions to build and to build upon Christ who is the foundation, the chief cornerstone, and to build with lively stones and to build with the proper material. And what are you saying? There is. He's saying that, that at the end of the age, that yeah, every man, woman, and child, everyone even within the church, um, will stand before God and give an account of every action, every thought, every deed, and they will be tested by fire. Imagine you've built a glorious kingdom. And at the end of the age, what God will do is He will stand with that kingdom before you and set it on fire. And He says that there is a possibility that it will stand. There's also a very real possibility that it will, because it's made of, of, of gold, silver, and precious stone, but there's a very real possibility that if it's been made with wood, hay, and stubble, that it will all be burned up and you'll have no, nothing to show for, kingdom, uh, for, for the kingdom's sake. And the reality is, is that there are many men in this world, many women, many children, that are building furiously. He didn't take into account how much their effort went in. He didn't take into account how high it was. He didn't take into account how expensive the wood was. And it would be expensive today. You know, the building materials. He didn't take in into necessity how much sweat, blood, and tears that they put into it. He, he, it was all based upon what kind it was, what quality it was, not the quantity, but the quality. And what he's doing is he's looking here in some sense and he's saying to the disciples, that there are a reality of branches out there that, that are seemingly in the vine. Um, and at the end of the day, they will accomplish absolutely nothing. It may be, the building may be beautiful. It may be ornate. It may be creative. It may be uh, skillful. It may be um, attractive to the eye. It may bring many people in, but if it's not of the right kind... It'll mean absolutely nothing at the end of the age. I mean, it will mean nothing for eternity. And that's the reality here, that, there are, that, that, that it doesn't necessarily matter men and women and children, boys and girls, how long you live. But how you live as long as you live. You know? It doesn't even necessarily matter how you do it. Although that is important and we're clear instructions. But the reality is, is that if Christ is not at the forefront and if he is not the 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 if the fruit is not the product of the life that is in that, that is fusing through you in Christ and it's not born out of a relationship with Christ, um, it can at the end of the age mean absolutely nothing. Thus, we are commanded to abide in him, to remain in him. Trusting that as we remain in Him, He will produce things in us that are His and not ours, but at the same time, in relationship to the union, it is ours. Thus Paul can say things like, I live yet not I. Christ liveth in me. Like I'm doing it, but I'm not. He's doing it, but at the same time, I'm doing it. 
Um, why? Because he's working out his own, um, his own salvation with fear and trembling. But, it, but he knows that it is, it, is, it is of his good purposes to will and to do in our lives as he pleases. And we are to simply yield ourselves to him, die daily, and as he prunes uh, things from our life, more fruit begins to grow. That's the Christian life. You know, it may come in different measures, but the reality is that that is the Christian life. There are no other types of Christians. There aren't the type that never grows any fruit. They're just nominal. And those that do grow fruit, those are the really mature Christians. No, there is one type of Christian, that Christian, that, that, that branch who is in Christ and the life of God is infusing through him. And as the father prunes, he grows. And he grows a fruit that is other than himself, that otherwise he would not have been able to grow. And that is a reality that you and I must come to grips with. That if we are truly in Christ, we are to grow in Christ. And if we are not growing in Christ, we are to examine ourselves and to see even whether we're in the faith at all. Um, That we are to abide and to abide in him. We are to live, we're to dwell, we're to remain in Christ. And this is the responsibility of all disciples. And by virtue of that, they will, they will prove to be my disciples, he says in verse number 8. They will bear much fruit and they will glorify my Father. That that's the result. Those are the implications, right? In other words, the glory of God, the fruit in my life, and my discipleship depends first of all and primarily upon abiding with Christ. But what does that even mean, right? That seems to be an abstract concept if you just, because we know He's not here and we are, right? So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Verse number seven, it means probably more than this, but it doesn't mean less than this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That first of all, and primarily, we abide, live, dwell, remain in Christ, and Christ abides in us when we abide in His Word. Do this, and you'll prove to be My disciples. You'll bear much fruit, and you'll glorify My Father, which is in heaven. That in relationship to this legal and vital union with Christ, Christ being absent, has ordained and organized means by which He mediates His presence to us and His gifts to us and even His character to us. And it's more than just words on a page. It is a living, breathing Word from God. It's a supernatural book that marries natural life to spiritual life and even in, even even ignites as a seed does Matthew chapter number 13 as as a seed is planted it, it it is sprouted by the very grace of God and produces fruit in the lives of those who are in him who have the right type of soil a soil prepared by God for God and as the word goes forth it 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 it, give, it brings forth life and eventually that life manifests itself in fruit And that life is often garnered and undergirded by the very Word of God itself. How do I change? How do I live with Christ? How do I abide in Him? We all want to change, don't we? You know, I talk to people who are just happy with themselves, and the reality is is that most of them are lying to themselves. 
They're just trying to convince themselves that they are good. They're, the, the, they're listening to the philosophies of the world who just say, you're the best thing ever, you know, and just embrace yourself and there's a power within you. But the reality is, is that they are overwhelmed with depression and anxiety. Why? Because they know that they are not perfect. We all know that we're not perfect. We all know that we need to change, even as Christians. Now, we know that we are not where we ought to be and that we ought to be more and we ought to be more faithful and we ought to be different, but we don't necessarily know how to get there. And what we end up doing is we end up clinging to a hundred different things that are ineffective. Um, and, and, and they're ineffective because they can't supply the life that God demands. You know, Isaiah chapter 55, the very next chapter from last week that we, we spent time in the first I mean, it carries on with this exhortation. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, listen, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And he asks this question. It's rhetorical. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Somebody might say, how? How does, how does my soul, Isaiah, delight itself in abundance? How do I do that? He goes on in verse number 3, incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live. Hear, listen, understand, open your eyes. Stop running after broken cisterns which can hold no water. You know, stop running after everything else in the world, every philosophy of man, and even every methodology of the church, and just listen. Listen to the Word of God. Be, be, find delight in your soul in which gives itself to abundance. Isn't that interesting that in John chapter number 15, he says these words, these things I've spoken to you. Why, Jesus? That my joy might remain in you. And that your joy may be full. That these words that I've been giving you, not only in this passage, but, but, but throughout my ministry and in the, in the discourse within the upper room, I'm speaking these things to you for a purpose. That your joy may be full. He goes on in John 16 to say the same thing. In John chapter number 17, um, he expresses this desire in a prayer to the Father. In verse number 13, he says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's almost what Isaiah is saying. Why are you running after every single thing in the world, seeking to be satisfied with bread that will not satisfy, with things of the world which cannot make you content, cannot um, uh, bring peace and rest within your soul, listen to me and you'll have a delight in abundance. In my presence is the fullness of joy, uh, the psalmist says. And he goes on and he prays that, that, that wonderful prayer. It's his desire that those whom the Word has gone forth to would have the joy of Christ living in them. A spirit, a fruit of the spirit that only comes truly from Him, right? What the, the the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, right? And even in John chapter fifteen, He's going to say, "Those that abide in My love, that abide in My commandments, and obey My commandments, abide in My love. As they abide in Me, they abide in My love. Listen to My words, have fullness of come into My presence, have fullness of joy." And He will impart unto them a character and a nature which is not, is, not, is not theirs, but is His. And He doesn't just argue for any joy. And He doesn't just argue for joy in general. 
He doesn't just argue for a general emotion. But the emotion, the affection that he actually argues for here is, 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 he says in multiple places, my joy. That the very divine nature of God will be communicated through His Word as they receive it by faith. It takes root in their hearts. It will produce fruit that is otherworldly. And it won't just, and it's otherworldly because it's, it's distinctly His. His joy. You want His joy in you. You want His love in you. Then He says, abide in My Word. He goes on to pray in John chapter number 17. And He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And you know this verse. Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word as is truth. As You sent Me in the world, I have also sent them. And for their sakes, I sanctify Myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He said, I've set myself apart for the truth and in the truth. Why? So that they could set themselves apart for the truth and in the truth. That Jesus Christ, in some sense, dies upon the cross to secure not only your salvation, but also your sanctification. The process by which you, you persevere to the end. And one way that He's going to accomplish that is through a living and breathing uh, uh, relationship with Him through the very Word of God. That what we have before us Within the Word is more than just a natural book. It's more than just a history of Jesus Christ in John chapter number 15. Um, God wants you not only to know the bare bone facts about His life, death, and resurrection. He wants you to see Him in the pages of these Scriptures. The problem is, is that we are in our fallen state and even as immature Christians on many days, just um, just silly creatures that are enamored by other things, dysfunctional affections and emotions. And as little children, just our attention is caught by the most frivolous things. And we think that that's just that's it. I got to have it, you know. Walk through the store, and, and 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 me as a child, and my children too, because all children are essentially the same. The, the shiny object, and they think that man, if I could just have that thing, like I'd just be happy. And it produces a, a happiness within them that is momentary. Actually, it's just a car ride home. <laughs> um, when the reality is, is that those things don't satisfy. Those things don't produce in our lives. Those things are distractions. Thus, God is often reminding us of that, that, that reality of the relationship that we are to have. And this seemingly mundane task of hearing and reading the Word of God um, is, prim- is, 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 is not the only means, but a primary means by which He communes with you. And you commune with Him, right? He goes on to say that, 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 that if you abide in Me and abide in My Word and you ask anything, this, this, this dual relationship, this almost this dialogue with God. He speaks to you through His Word. He communes and you speak to Him and then He gives an answer to prayer. Why? That your joy may be full, He says. That there is, and He even prays for it in His heart, in the depths before He's about to go to the cross. He could pray a million things and possibly He does. But He prays this prayer for you that that joy may be full. That those answers to prayer may come. And the reality is is that He roots it in the sanctification of the Spirit and and man in the relationship that He has with the Word of God. Thus He says, Lord, Father, sanctify them in Thy truth. Thy Word is true. 
And that's the reality that what we have before us is a sword that pierces. It is a hammer that crushes. It is honey that is sweet to the taste. It is um, a a, a living, breathing word from God that brings um, his very presence to our hearts on many occasions that, that, that take root and fruit grows as a result of it. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. And chapter number 2. I want to give you an example in Scripture that Paul records for us of the supernatural work of God um, through the Word of God in the life of believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 3, you read these words. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. I mean, just joy abounding and thanksgiving. Why, Paul? Because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. If you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans." What you see here is a word that is supernaturally given and it's delivered and it is supernaturally received with the utmost joy and thanksgiving. Note with me just a couple of things. First, the Word of God delivered by Paul is called the Word of God. It's not any ordinary word. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 2.13 as as not being taught by human wisdom but being taught by the Spirit of God. Whereas in Galatians 1.12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was, it ta- nor was I taught, but I received it from the, as a revelation from Jesus Christ. If this is a word supernaturally received from God and supernaturally delivered in the power of the Spirit. Uh, 1 Thessalonians in chapter number 1 and verse 5, Paul writes these words. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Do you you get kind of the, uh, the, the, the process there? You received the Word of God as the Word of God. It came in much power and assurance in the, in the Spirit of God, in, in, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, such that you became examples. Right? John chapter 15. Receive the Word. It, 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 it provokes prayer. It proves discipleship. Um, it, it, it produces joy. Um, verse number 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and you know and, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? You proved your discipleship. How? Because you received the word of God produced in you joy even in the midst of much affliction. It, it, it worked in your lives. Why? Because you received it as the Word of God and it was rooted and grounded in faith. Second, Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians received His Word. He doesn't say thank you church for receiving the Word of God. You did what was logical and reasonable. You know, Kudos to you 
for coming to the knowledge of the truth yourself. He doesn't say that. He thanks God. Why? Because it's from God. It's a supernatural work that's given by God. He knows that by nature men don't receive the Word. Thus He thanks God. Even as it carries a glory all its own, it's much like Christ who in all of His glory before men was not received but was rejected and murdered. Paul knows this too is true of the Word. He knows that it's not always received because men are blinded and hardened to it by Satan himself and by the lusts of the age. Paul knows that it is in 2 Corinthians 14 an aroma of death to death for some of those who are listening. But here at Thessalonica, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians to some, it is an aroma of life leading to life. Why? Because it was effective through faith. And Paul is overjoyed with thankfulness. His, his thankfulness is not directed toward his own gifts or, or he doesn't thank himself because he preached so eloquently or he proclaimed the Word of God with just such clarity. He understands that if a man is going to believe, it must be revealed to them by God. It must be drawn by the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God to places that you and I could never go. And this was a miracle of miracles. And the gracious action of God... And that He grants eyes to the Thessalonians to see what is Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians as the light of the glory of the Gospel. Or the light of the glory of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.3, But even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age have blinded, who don't believe. That not less the light of the glory of uh, the Gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God should shine on them. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is, He says, this is why you receive the Word. Not because I'm eloquent. Not because I'm skillful. Not because I'm, I'm, I'm overly academic. Not because I'm um, the theologian of the house um, within the nation of Israel. Not because I'm the apostle to the nations. But because just like God sh- spoke light into existence in ages past, He, sh- he showed light in your hearts. Because you are dead and blinded, and if the devil had, had, had his way with your heart and soul, you would have remained veiled for all eternity and separated from him. But God spoke a supernatural word through the, through the, through the means and measure of a, of a frail and fragile man and brought to life men who were dead. But Paul recognizes all I am is a, is a mere vessel. Thus, he guards himself against eloquence on many occasions that the Word of God would go forth with sincerity and with clarity and in faithfulness that God may do and accomplish the work. That's what we have before us. And just like it, 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 it began a good work in us, God will complete it till the day of Christ. Third, this apostolic Word was received as a divine Word and not as a dormant Word by the Thessalonians. It was not ineffective. Paul says it is at work in you believers. It's still at work. You know? Paul says in verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God. That's how we know that it's still at work. Your disciples, the rest of the world knows. We don't even have to go tell them about your faith. They know. Because the Word of God has taken root. The Spirit of God is fertilizing it with His glory such that it is bringing light to your souls. That, you, that, that, that it took root and you became imitators of us and of the Lord's. Even in the midst of much affliction, it says, you had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? And what we have before us is a supernatural Word from God. 
that carries with it its own power and the job of the preacher and the proclaimer and the husband and the wife and the father and the mother and the career man is simply um, to utilize it for our own sake, but also to clearly give it and utmost to receive it with joy. But we know that still, if we make sense of anything, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, you know, and that God must show forth with light what is to be made known. Matthew chapter 16, you know, Peter, who men say that I am? Some say this, some say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You know? If this is the reality that we have before us, right? And the question is, is you know, this is the way that the New Testament church was born. This is the way Thessalonica um, thrived. But is that is that still how the Word of God works today? You know, the whole experience was pervasively supernatural. But now, in the rest of Christian life, you know, um, are we to come to the Word of God in just a completely natural way? Is that what those at Thessalonica did? And I would say no. I would say no. That they were that the Word of God had birthed in them new life and that the Word of God was their life as it brought them into communion with Christ on many, on many occasions. And that the same way that, 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 that we are birthed into this world and light shines forth is the same way that we are sustained, church. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Boys and girls. That the Gospel is what brings us to Himself. And that the gospel primarily is what will sustain us and produce fruit in us through um, our Christian lives. And that's the question of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Um, Paul has a problem with those at Galatians, right? the, the churches of Galatians. And he writes these words, Are you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit are now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. It sounds almost like Isaiah. Ho, oh, you, what? come. Drink from a well that you did not dig. You know, come buy food with money that you don't have. Why do you run after things that satisfy, um, that, 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 that things that feel, that feel but do not satisfy and don't really truly feel at all? Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1, that's almost the argument Paul is making. You began in the truth. Why are you now trying to live outside of the truth? If that's how the Spirit operated in your life to bring you to Christ, why do you think that you can live any other way now? And he's calling them to persevere in the gospel, to persevere in the truth. That it was there that they found Christ, right? Galatians chapter 1, who, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. But Christ was not there. As far as we know, he didn't exit the borders of the nation of Israel or anywhere close to that. He didn't travel over to the churches that were in uh, that, that made up the Galatians. So how can the Apostle Paul here say, "Who's before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified"? How is it that 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 Christ can be among them yet not? Therein lies the question, right? 
It was through the preaching of the gospel. It was through the proclamation of the word of God. It was, it was as the spirit took the word of God to their very hearts such that they could say Christ was clearly among us, portrayed among us, and we saw him as crucified. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with, a, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. This is one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. In this passage, Paul is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant and the deficiency of Moses in the old covenant. He says in verse number 13, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadily at the end uh, see of what was passing away. And what he's speaking of there is he's speaking of a covering the glory as he comes down off the mount. He's been in the presence of God. The glory um, is just overwhelming. So he veils his face so that, that, that those that are about him could not see. They couldn't, couldn't handle it. So he covers his face and veils the glory. Verse 14, he says, But their minds were blinded, for unto this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. And what he's saying, he's saying that the glory was not only hid from them that were among Moses, but that the Jews in successive generations, the glory was hid. Why? Because their minds were veiled as they read the Old Testament, as they read Moses. And when they read the Old Covenant, they did not see the glory of God in the Word of God. And he goes on to say that until the veil is taken away in Christ and they turn to the Lord, they can't see the glory and they won't be changed. But he goes on to say, but we all with an unveiled face beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as the Spirit of the Lord. That the veil has been lifted in Christ and His glory is revealed and we are transformed by the Spirit of the Lord as we behold it. Behold what? Behold Him. Where's the glory at? It's in Christ. And just like in the Old Testament, the glory was with the generation of Moses. But what happens when Moses is gone? Does that mean that they can't see the glory anymore? Paul argues, no, the glory was there. It was just veiled. And it was veiled in, and, and, and the glory was present in the depiction of Christ and in the Word of God as it's supernaturally given. As they read it, they saw the glory, but they didn't see the glory. And many people today have an issue with even the new covenant in a similar way. Jesus came. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended. Where is He now? If Jesus was to come back, I would, I would believe. You know? I mean, you can, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can understand how John was so strong, don't you? Can't you? Jesus was with them. John, first John chapter number one, um, he said, John one, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory has of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He says that in first John, that that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness. John saying we saw his glory. We were there. We, we, we laid next to him. We held him with our hands. Um, and, and you look at that and you think, man, the apostles were just, were just, just supernatural. I mean, how could they not be? They prayed with Christ. They heard him preach. They held him with his hands. They saw the glory. 
But what do we have in a book? You know? You know, all that we have is just ink on a page. As if it's... John goes on to argue that it's more than that. That John is actually recording the very Word of God in that. And he's, and he's saying we saw His glory. We were there. But the question remains, what about those who were after Christ? What about those who were after Moses? What about those who, who, who didn't see Christ in, in the flesh? Are they doomed because they don't have Him? Do they have sufficient evidence and reason to reject Him because He's not here? I mean, you hear it all the time from atheists. If He wanted to come down and show Himself, I mean, I would believe. Um, but we can't hear Him. We can't see Him. We can't hold Him. Is our faith going to be nearly as strong as theirs? John says you can. He goes on to say, we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John made clear that, that he saw as his role as, as a helper in later generations to to. Pre- to, to portray Christ to them. He knew possibly that later Christians would wonder if they could have the same spiritual insight and the same spiritual sight of the glory of Christ as those first eyewitnesses. And he believed they could. And I believe you can. That he put the glory of the Son of God front and center as he wrote his gospel. That it's alive and breathing and speaks to the hearts of men and through it the Spirit of God enlightens and, and, and light shines out of darkness. And He portrays the glory of Christ and the signs of Christ and in the raising of Lazarus and in the Gospel message. But what about generations to follow that didn't see the Lord firsthand? How would they see the glory of God and believe? John's answer to that is simple. That the Holy Spirit would come and enable Him and other eyewitnesses to put what they saw into words. John 14.26, John 16.13, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He'll guide you into all truth. For He'll speak not of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He'll speak and He'll tell you things to come. He will glorify Me. He will set before the church throughout all the ages in every generation and in every um, geographical location that when the Word of God is preached, the Spirit of God will enable those to see the glory of Christ. Such that um, the, the New Testament could even say that, 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 that you and I, the least of the kingdom of God, um, has, is, is better off than even John the Baptist, who saw the Christ, who was the, the, the greatest man born of a woman at that time, who was martyred for him, recognizes that you and I are not insufficient in what we have, that we have before us. That the agency of the Spirit of God such that He can glorify Christ through the truth that is told and proclaimed. And you can be instructed and encouraged and to grow in Christ. And the same is said by Paul. This isn't just John, this is Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. I won't spend a lot of time here just to say Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 4. Well, let me read verse 3. How that by revelation He made known to me the mystery. He's talking about the mystery of the Jew and the Gentile. They're coming together as one body. And He says, as I have briefly already written, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You know what He says? He says, I've already recorded things. And when you read those, God by His Spirit can take it and show you the mystery of Christ. 
which when in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. To do what, Paul? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace. And in verse number 14, he goes on, he explains a little more. You know what he does? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it does? It provokes him to prayer, the mystery of Christ. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 15, abide in my word. You know what it'll do? It'll provoke you to prayer. It'll transform your inner man. You'll pray. You'll seek. What does he seek for? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the depths, the, the width, the length, the depth, the height, the, to know the love of Christ. Abide in my word. Know the mystery. And, my, and God's love will abide in you. Right? That's what Paul's praying here. In some sense, in much more eloquent and and, and, an in-depth way. But this is what the mystery of Christ that is read is supposed to accomplish in our hearts. That this is the idea. That when you read, you are to see. In particular, you are to see Christ and be transformed by Him. And that the Word of God takes root in your life and even communicates to you His divine nature. say, I don't know if that makes sense. That makes sense to me either. <laughs> um, welcome to the club. But the reality remains. Second um, Peter chapter number one. Let me give you this and we'll close it down. Second Peter chapter number one. You read these words. Verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. How? In the knowledge of God. And of, our Je- and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know, I've heard that quoted about a million times and I've quoted it probably about a hundred saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has, when He saved you, given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. I've, given some, I've even somewhat in past insinuated with a lack of understanding of this verse that, that it's within them. You know, and that's nothing more than just pagan philosophies you know, and, and, and humanistic thinking today saying the power lies within you. And in some sense it does, but how? Um, that His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Remember, pruning. Something goes, what comes? The divine nature. How? By clinging to the exceedingly great and precious promises that grace is coming to you through the knowledge of God. And that is how He actually um, communicates His divine nature to you and makes you more like Himself. John chapter 15. How in the world do you have the joy of Christ? It is part of His divine nature. And He promises that those who abide in Him will have the fullness of that joy and not just any joy, but His joy. He's, depart- he's imparting His divine nature. That's what He says. And He says it in more than one place. He says that you may have My joy. That's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? Most of the time when we picture our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we see Him crucified. We see Him agonizing. We see Him weeping. We see Him with compassion. But here He expresses, as He does in a couple of other places, um, the, the joy that He has. He must have been the most joyful man that ever walked the face of the earth. 
We never see him with a smile on his face in pictures and we never hear of the joy that he had. But if he is a man who not only does all things right, but even um, emotes and affects right and has the appropriate affections when, uh, when, when necessary and when appropriate, how joyful he must have been. I think that it's Luke chapter 10 that he rejoices in the knowledge of God. He actually rejoices in fellowship with God. He rejoices in the fact that God, and as He sends out the 70, He comes back and He thanks God and He rejoices because, because He had revealed, because the Father was revealing um, the knowledge of God to, to the least of them. You know that, that was where His joy was. It was in communion with the Father. It was a direct product of that. And it was in His works. And it was in His actions. And it was in who He is and His character and His nature. And it was, and it was just a glorious thing to, 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 to encounter. When, when No doubt when a sinner came, the joy that, that, that overwhelmed our Lord. What a sight that would have been. To see a little one come to Christ or to see a, an adult uh, uh, come to Christ. It must have overwhelmed Him with joy. And he says that, 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 that the joy that he has, and now it's unbridled, no longer in, 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 veiled in human flesh, um, that, is, that is mortal. But now you, you can have his joy in you, unspeakable and full of glory. The question is today, how do you have that? How do you have the love that abides in the Father? How do you, you have it through the knowledge of God. You have it through His exceedingly precious promises. You have it as the Word of God is communicated to you by the Spirit of God and shows you Christ and He imparts to you His divine nature and makes you more like His Son as the vine it, it infuses the branch with His life. But this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is who we are. There is no other type of Christian. There is no other type of Christian life. There are levels to how faithful we are, yes. But, there is, but, but, but in that much pruning happens. Thus, this is no different for any of us. That this is who we are. That, that, that there is a, a, a legal union, but a vital union in which God the Father communes with us and He does it primarily through His Word. The Spirit takes it supernaturally and shows us Christ. And we rejoice and we and we revere and we are sobered and we, and, we, and we are overwhelmed with joy at the sight that we could have such a father, such a son, such a spirit. Thus, it is incumbent upon us to abide in Christ. Men, you must read the Word. Ladies, you must read the Word. And I know that it seems mundane on most days, but isn't that exactly what God would use? And so many Christians and even us are just waiting on supernatural experiences. I mean, we're just waiting on God to show Himself from heaven. And, and doesn't He say that He uses the foolish things of the, of, the, of the world to confound the wise? So wouldn't He take one of the most mundane actions in all of creation to pick up and read a book to show Himself for and to use even the littlest of things in the seemingly uh, last place that God should be? And utilize that in a supernatural way through the knowledge of Him to make um, you like Himself and to show the world who He is in your discipleship and to glorify your Father which is in heaven. I met with a group of men yesterday and we've taken as our task to attempt to understand the book of Revelation and um, seek the Lord in that that He might be glorified.
And I was reminded in Revelation chapter 2 of the church at Ephesus this morning. And you read those words to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? These things say, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this thing against you, that you have left your first love. Isn't that sobering? That there is a way to be a faithful church, um, yet to yet to neg- yet to fail to have the divine nature in the realm of love, right? Isn't it amazing that you could have the most doctrinally sound church, orthodox to the T, orthopraxy? unparalleled I mean they're practicing I mean they're just you know uh, they're organizing the church they're ordering the church when somebody comes in they're not tolerating sin I mean they're putting apostates out of the church church discipline's going um, you know off with a with a with a bang I mean everybody's in support and he says says I have this thing against you where's the love how could that be I can tell you how it can be because I live in I've lived it on a lot of days an academic exercise where the Word of God is nothing more than an academic exercise that I read for, for, for whatever reason and, and it's not to pursue Christ. That there is a way to read the Word of God without reading the Word of God. That there is a way to operate as a church and yet not have the importation of the divine nature. It, it, is, it, is, it is just clear to me that, that at some level the church at Ephesus was not abiding in Christ. They were abiding in something. Their their life was drawn from somewhere and it mimicked. It looked like a branch bearing fruit. And He calls them to turn. And if they don't, then they will... um, And if they don't, then they will... um, The light will be taken away from them. So to turn back to that love, how do they do that? I think you do that through a proper reading of the Word of God as you pursue Christ through Him. Or you pursue Christ through the reading of the Word of God. The Gospels proclaim the Word of God takes effect. And, um, and He communicates to you that divine nature. Turn back. Remember what God did. Didn't that what He said? In, Ephesians, or in uh, Revelation chapter 2, return. Go back to the first things. Galatians. How have you, foolish Galatians, how have you failed so? You who began this way, why are you trying to live another way now? By works of the law, instead of in the Spirit by faith. Did you not, did, did you not begin by the Spirit, hearing the Word in faith? Christ proclaimed to you and portrayed to you. Turn back is what He's saying. The church at Ephesus, turn back to the Lord. Maybe to us this morning. Maybe to me. Turn back. Turn back. Isn't it amazing and sobering to think about Judas for three and a half years? The glory of Christ is ever before him. And he didn't see it, not a lick of it. Rejected it. Isn't it amazing how in a lot of days we can spend years reading the Word of God and it produces nothing? We are not that much different. The glory is there. Christ is there. He's overwhelmingly pictured in the Gospel. 
And he communicates and communes with his people through that. That's when we read, we are to read in pursuit of him. We are to seek after him. We are to find him. When we open Genesis all the way to Revelation, even in places like uh, Nehemiah and Habakkuk and these, these obscure places. The question is, is where is God? And when I go, I must find him. Show me Christ. Reveal to me the glory. Take off the veil. Let me see that I may see him and be like him. Isn't that what we said? One day we will see him and we will be like him in full measure. May God today allow us to see him that we may be like him. Maybe not in full measure, but in some measure. That God would just impart to us his love and his joy and his peace. So that Philippians chapter number two, um, holding fast the word of life. Putting aside grumbling and complaining, right? Clinging to the word of God that, that you'll shine forth as a light in the midst of a wicked and a perverse nation. Isn't that what he said in John 15? You do this, you'll bear fruit, you'll have my love, yeah, you'll obey my commandments, you'll have my joy, you'll glorify my Father which is in heaven, you will prove your discipleship, and you will bear, why would you bear much fruit? Let us be a church that's not carrying on. Let us be not an individual that's carrying on with mundane activities and reading the Word of God like it's some natural book and that academically, I'm, uh, theologically, I'm sound, yet um, no fruit abounds. You know, why do you read the Word? Read it to pursue Him. Um, it is, again, sobering thing, but a joyful thing to think about, isn't it? Man, all the days that I've, yeah, I've pursued myself in the scriptures. I pursued other things in the scriptures. May God reveal His glory. May God make me like Himself. May God utilize that means. Again, there's more than that, but even that just makes other things amazing, right? Like I know that He uses the church. He uses fellowship. He's going to use the Lord's table. I hope. But, but, but there's a reality there that if you don't have an understanding of the Scriptures, even those things don't mean things, right? I can remember practicing the Lord's table for years not having a clue what it meant. But when God brings His Son to the forefront, the Gospel shines forth, it changes that and that strengthens your faith. So receive it by faith. Receive the Word by faith. And just give God all the glory because you know. <laughs> like Paul, Thessalonica, they didn't do it of themselves and it wasn't because of me. But if anything's accomplished this morning, it's by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. So let us use the Word. Let us glory in it. Why? Because there we find Christ. Not for the joy necessarily, but knowing that when we go, He will no doubt produce it. It will be on the branches. Why? Because life flows through Him. You're not to produce the joy. You're not to produce the love. You're simply to abide in Christ. Find Him. When you find Him, You'll fall on your face and you'll rise with rejoicing. And there's no doubt when you see Him, you will be like Him. And joy and love will inevitably be the result. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You again just for the reality of Christ. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for... Um, just all that You accomplished, Lord, on our behalf. Father, we thank You that even though we don't have Christ, we do. What a glory it must have been. What a wonder it must have been to hear Him preach. 
But I don't imagine it's much different now than when he preaches to my soul as I read the book of Galatians. With it too comes similar power and similar glory. Father, we just love and praise You and thank You for the glory that is present in it. Father, knowing that we fail on most occasions, but at the same time on many occasions, um, Father, You meet with us and make us more like Your Son. Father, I don't know why, I, why I'm here today on a lot of accounts. I don't know why I have faith. I don't know why I woke up with it this morning. If I look like You in any way, I don't know why other than just Your grace. And You just continue to labor with me. You're so patient. You're so kind. You're so long-suffering. And Lord, to that I am forever grateful. And Father, in some measure, I've, I know that I failed in reading the Word the way that I should. So Father, would You just revive in me a heart that longs, Psalm 119, after Your Word. Father, I need that in my own soul. Father, I know that the psalmist teaches that You instruct sinners in their way. Um, Father, that You lead the righteous. So Father, I cling to that promise that You'll continue to do that in my own soul. And that You'll continue to do that in the souls of, of the church. Father, that You'll increase our hunger. And that You'll use us for Your glory, Father. That You'll make us like Yourself and that the nations will see. And not honor and glorify the church that is here, but honor and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And that's the instruction and encouragement, isn't it, Father? Matthew uh, 6. That we are to be salt and we are to be light. And when the world sees it, we will shine forth, Father, and they will glorify our Father which is in heaven because of the works that they see in us. But we know they're not really our works. They're yours. And at the same time, we glory in the fact that they are ours because we are in you. So Father, praise you. Praise Your Son and praise Your Spirit for all that He accomplishes on our behalf. And Father, we give the Son all the glory and all the praise. And just pray, Father, um, that if we are like a church at Ephesus or at any other stage, Father, that You would just renew the Spirit that is within us. That You would give us a lively relationship to the Word. And um, Father, that You would just reignite that love and joy as a result of communion with You. That's what we ask, Father. We simply ask that You would commune with us through the Word and that You would do it even this morning, Father, as the Word was preached and read and we fellowshiped around it, Father. Help us to receive it by faith. Help us to repent if needed and at the end, help us all rejoice that You are continuing to work in us and for us. And if You be for us, who can be against us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.